Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. We are going to talk today about loss of a parent and a husband. And our guests are Susan Esposito Lombardo, Stevie Esposito, and Dr. Robin Goodman. The date was September 11, 2001. The time was 8.46 a.m. when a plane crashed into Tower 1 of the World Trade Center and changed the lives of Susan Esposito Lombardo and her mother, Stevie Esposito, forever. Their father and husband, Billy Esposito, was taken unexpectedly from them. In response to his death, the family decided to start a caring hand, the Billy Esposito Foundation, in his memory with the mission to provide bereavement services and financial assistance for educational opportunities to children that have experienced the death of a parent or loved one. Dr. Robin Goodman is a licensed clinical psychologist and director of A Caring Hand, the Billy Esposito Bereavement Center. Welcome to the show, Robin, Susan, and Stevie. It's great having you guys on the show today, and uh, this is Gloria. I was saying we're, I think we're going to have to kind of identify ourselves today, but it's wonderful having you on, and I love the fact that um, you two, Susan and Stevie, are doing a mother, a mother-daughter mm-hmm. activity and, together. And in tribute, in tribute to your spouse and your father, because all the work we do is in tribute to my brother and my mom's son. So, I mean, it's so incredible that you're doing this in Billy's name. And I so know that Billy and Scott are up there like cheering us on every day and giving us endless energy. Absolutely. <clears throat> How did you uh, get started with this? Uh, either uh, Stevie or Susan, why don't you take that on and tell us about what happened and, and how you got started. This is Susan. Um, we got, I got started when someone had given me the idea. I was actually uh, my therapist at the time to do something in my dad's name. So um, I never really do things quite small. So I came home and I said to my mother and my brother, I said, I think I want to start a foundation. So they said, okay. And we met with some people who had experience starting organi- starting foundations. And we pulled all of our resources together of friends and family. And next thing we know, it's now almost eight years later, and um, our foundation has raised over millions of dollars, and we've um, provided bereavement counseling for children that have lost loved ones and um, financial assistance for children for education. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, how long after your dad died did you do this? Uh, I would have to say our first event was March 26, 2002, so it probably took us about, uh, I would say, I probably met with um, the people that helped me do this in, I'm not, I would say the summertime or yeah, May, June of 2000, right, 2002, right? So, so not oh, so a- our first event was, I'm sorry, okay. 2003. Okay, so so not even a year after nine eleven, you were, you started everything in the works and started getting it <clears throat> up and running. Yes. Wow, Susan, how did you feel? Uh, was that early for you to have something going on? I, you know, it's interesting because Heidi and I always look at some people start things right away and, and some people go on a little bit. So here you are, mother daughter. W- were you ready for this? 
uh, this is Susan. I I don't know if it was something that I was ever going to be ready for or not ready for. I kind of just went with it, basically. Mm-hmm. I didn't really question whether this is something I'm ready to do or not do. I figured it was probably one of the only ways to ex- get out the anger I was feeling and help other people. Uh-huh. Could you tell us a little bit about that September 11th at uh at when did you find out about the World Trade Center and, and how did it go? Um, well, I had spoken to my dad right before. It was around 8.20 or so. And um, I was actually getting ready for my first day of my, of my internship. And um, I had spoken to my father. I was getting ready and I was going into the shower. And uh, my dad had called, like he generally did in the morning, just to kind of be annoying. And... Um, he had asked if I knew where his phone was because my mom's broke, so he had, she had taken his. And um, I said, all right, go back to work, do something with yourself and make some money. And I went in the shower, <clears throat> and I came out, and he was uh, dead. So uh, my parents' line had been ringing in the house, and I was choosing to ignore it because I had to get ready. And uh, my then boyfriend, now husband, had called and asked me what I was doing. I said, oh, I'm getting ready. And I heard someone talking on my parents' machine, and it said something had happened in Billy's building. So I ran downstairs, and I guess my husband had known, said, I'm on my way. And without even thinking, I just picked up the phone and called my dad's office and then called my dad's cell phone and then called my dad's office and then called my dad's cell phone, not even realizing my mother had had it. I just told him that... And um, I kind of went, like, I really don't remember much. As I remember my mother walking in, my husband walking in, my grandmother walking in, some friends of the family walking in, and my brother walking in. And um, we had turned the TV on, but after that, I mean, my mom could take the rest. I don't really remember much of it. Hi, this is Stevie. Yes, uh, I actually, my husband used to call me every morning at 8.40 because I would go jogging with my friends and he needed gossip. <laughs> and uh, he would say, so how, is you, how are your friends? And I would be like, why would you call me every day at 8.40 when you know I'm in the shower? And he'd go, get a jump. You know, and I would say, okay, love you, bye. And uh, I, was, I was going to the beach. It was a gorgeous day. And... Uh, my son called on my husband's cell phone and said, Ma, did you speak to Daddy? And I'm like, no, why? And he goes, a plane went into the trade center. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I said, okay. He said, I'm going to go into the city. I'm like, no, 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 you're going to come home. And I made a U-turn, and I walked home, and I ran into the house, and Susan was there with a towel around her head in a bathrobe getting ready. And... Uh, my friends started to come in, and uh, you know, and we had the TV on, and my house became like Grand Central Station. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my son's friends and my daughter's friends were in the city, going to different places. People went to the hospitals, you know, looking for burn victims. Somebody else had it online in London, and it was just like days just ran into days, and. Uh, we didn't leave the house. Kids would leave around, I don't know, 5 in the morning and come back at know, 12, 11 o'clock in the morning. And all I remember is that Susan and I kept cleaning. Mm-hmm. That's all we kept doing. But, uh, 
you know, is that because that's what you had control over? Probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now where do you live? Belmore, Long Island. So you're on Long Island. So you didn't ever go into the city? Well, I, I actually used to work for a, uh antique store on Twain Street in Tribeca. Uh-huh. And I happened to have been in there the end of August. And I always used to go to the bottom of the trade center. I would go in early to shop. So, uh, you know, the other thing was also that uh, when we were putting pictures together for a collage, uh, I had noticed my son was holding up a security tag from the trade center. And his first job was on the 84th floor. And I remember saying the only thing worse than this would be if they were both in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so, so um, when did you actually go into the city? I mean, uh, you know, I'm thinking it, it kind of reminds me of these families because you know they're here in the United States and their families are in Haiti or whatever, and something's going on, and it's, it's got to be hell. You know, it's funny that you're saying that because I walked into Susan's house yesterday and. I said to you, you getting any feelings about seeing any of this on TV? And she's like, no, I don't really have time right now for feelings. <laughs> and uh, Susan happens to have two children, so I can identify with this. <laughs> a three-year-old and a four-month-old. And a career. <laughs> yeah, and a career. So she's multitasking. Right. And uh, I said I was, you know, the, the rubble was okay, but there was one thing that happened on the Today Show where they introduced the family, and the father was crying because he was really excited that they had found his daughter, and it's the best news, and we heard from her. And about 20 minutes later, Matt Lauer came on and said that there was an error. They hadn't found his daughter. That's awful. And they had put out a list the Thursday after, so it was the 13th of September, and I remember my son on the computer looking at the list, and his friends were around, and my husband's boss was on the list, and there was other people. And I remember I started to cry, and my son said to me, why are you crying? And I'm like, because somebody's name isn't going to be on the list that's alive. You know, what if daddy's name isn't on the list? And uh, Susan's best friend was in there on the list, who was 21, and it wound up that it was a fake list that somebody oh, no. put on the Internet. So oh my goodness! That's awful. It just brought up everything that, you know, that family. Like when he said that, like that's all I could think about. Mm-hmm. Now, did you were you able to get your husband's remains or no? No, there was nothing found. Nothing. I had gotten a, a letter actually from the police department, and uh, oh god, about three years ago, and I wound up. A friend of mine was in work for the police department, and we took pictures of pictures where my husband's jewelry could be identified because they wouldn't let me go in and identify it. So she was going to drop off the pictures to her sergeant, but nothing came of it. Mm-hmm. Now, talk about that for our families out there. You know, how is that to not have a body, to not know, you know, what came up for you at this time, and how did you deal with it for the people that are struggling right now? Uh, you know, I guess, I guess the one thing is, is that you still have that 1% chance that maybe he's wandering around somewhere Mm -hmm. and doesn't know where he is. Uh And as much as I know that that's nuts, it's there. 
It's there. It just uh, it just doesn't go away. And you know, I know somebody, another family. Actually, they had knocked on her door, and uh, they had a body part, and they had a funeral with this in a in a coffin with just this body part. And I remember calling up my girlfriend, who was on the police force, and said, "If anybody finds anything, please let me know before you show up at my house." And, you know, I think that what Stevie's bringing up is so normal. I mean, when Scott died in a car accident, he was he, the car blew up. And so, you know, he obviously, he and my cousin both didn't have really bodies that we could identify. However, we did identify their foot. And I remember thinking, that wasn't them. Somebody kidnapped them, put different kids in the car. And, you know, I made up this whole irrational thing. But, you know, what? grief isn't rational. And we so want to believe and hold on to hope um, that this couldn't have happened. There's no way. I mean, Billy was in the prime of his life. He was fit. He was funny. I don't even know this guy, but I'm already getting his personality from you guys. Scott was in the prime of his life. I mean, how does someone, one minute they're there, healthy, and the next second they're gone? It's hard for our minds to wrap itself around those kind of things and I know Robin's been, worked with you know families for years and now is working with this foundation so I'm sure she can kind of weigh in on this too mom yeah Robin why don't you weigh in on this well you know I, I think too that everybody handles it their own way there is no right way or wrong way some people kind of um, you know kind of put some of their feelings, their feelings in the box about it all. And other people, it is without that concrete, physical, because so much you want to still have, you know, that hope to keep you, keep you going. Um, and like one more chance, one more, you know, one more touch, one more kiss. And kind of, I think we always, even if you do have the person and you have a funeral, you know, you, you just always want more. You always yeah. want more. And without having that, those actual physical things that, you know, provide those rituals for us, I think it just leaves that kind of hole there. Just it makes it keeps it a little more open um, in terms of that you just it was it's never enough, never enough time, never enough of the person. Um, mm -hmm. And that is so normal, and, like and, you and said. It, and it's funny because we had someone, Dr. Darthy, Darcy Sims on and she mm -hmm. said that she had lost her child to mm -hmm. an illness. And everyone said, well, at least she said goodbye. And she said, I didn't say goodbye. Right. I said I love you. Even when you know someone's dying, you don't. You're not going to say goodbye. You don't want to say goodbye. You hold on to them. You love them. You just tell them you love them. You don't want them to go. You know, this is Gloria. There's another thing that um, happens too. That's a natural grieving process, which is called yearning and searching, and that's where you think you see them everywhere. And for those people who are feeling that way out there, it's totally normal. I mean, I remember getting a stiff neck from looking around in crowds and places where I knew Scott had been, and uh, this yearning and searching goes on. Uh, uh, Susan, you haven't logged in on this yet. Have you got any thoughts about it? Uh, definitely I could identify with you as far as looking around and I mean I remember driving on uh, Merrick Road which is a, a main road by you know on Long Island and just like looking in cars and thinking that I, I saw like I would see him and then there was a thin version of him and then there was a heavier version of him and there was this version of him and um, I used to have visions that um, 
I remember I was out to dinner for with a bunch of my friends for my birthday in Little Italy. And at one point, like I just remember turning and looking at the door and hoping and praying that he'd walk through. And I could see what he was wearing. But, um, you know, that wasn't the case. You know, it's that 1% chance or, you know, that, like Robin had said, like there's still that openness when you don't have a physical remain to kind of bury or what have you. There's that, like, little hope out there. Now, how did you deal with not having physical remains? Uh you know, did you have a coffin? Did you have a funeral? I mean, what exactly did you do? Um, do you want to take that, Stevie? Uh, hi, this is Stevie. We had, uh, my my husband used to go to uh, 5 o'clock mass, and there was this one priest that he thought was hysterical. And I had no idea because I didn't go to mass. And my girlfriend gave me his name, and he came over to the house, and he was hysterical. And uh, he was a great person. And he uh, did, we had a mass at St. Barnabas, and my rabbi came to that mass at the church also. And then, uh, I guess about a year later, we had, well, we didn't have anything to, well, I did. we did put a stone up, and we wrote on the stone. And, uh, and we had... The rabbi was away, so we had the priest come to the Jewish cemetery to do the unveiling, which is totally our life anyway. You know. Now, the unveiling, is that where you put a black cloth over the... Well, we didn't... Well, tell us about the foundation a little bit, Robin. Why don't you kind of take that for us? And uh, Robin's the uh, director of the foundation. I'm actually just the director of the center. It's um, This is Robin. Okay. Um, and... Susan is the one who is the brainchild as well as the child of um, Billy. And she's the one that, you know, really kind of took this and ran with it and saw that um, not only was there a need, you know, for her to do something for her father, but then to really honor him by having this foundation and then seeing that actually in New York City there is no bereavement center. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't one and wouldn't be one if it wasn't for her um, wanting to Which I've got to tell you is amazing to me. I mean, there's, what, 9 million people here? I've always found that amazing, and I think it's so fabulous that there's finally a bereavement center here. Yeah, I mean, Susan can talk about the, what that eureka moment was like when she realized, oh, my gosh, I have to do this. I don't know if you want to... Yeah, go ahead. When um, we had gone through our own bereavement group in uh, on Long Island, and I didn't find any real connection. It was you know, mothers of people, you know, who lost their sons or what have you. And um, I felt like nobody understood what I was going through except for other 9-11 people. Um, and I wanted to have a place where people felt connected, felt like they were understood, not felt that if they said, you know, I'm having the worst day ever, they were looked at like they were had four heads. I mean... I could talk to my friends about it. It's not like they understood what I was going through. So, now, do you feel do you feel that um, the public nature of nine eleven made it different for you, or no? Yes. And and tell us about that because there are people out there who have been in very high profile cases and they're feeling something. I know that you are about that. So tell us about that. There's no escaping it. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody dies of a heart attack or or cancer or you know it, it's it's that one personal day 
this is a I mean, this is a worldwide event. I mean, that everybody is, I mean, there's no privacy to it. And and I was struck, Susan, and just working with the firefighter families for the last seven, eight years, that you guys, I mean, I just was more so much more aware of how inundated you are and how out of control it is for you. I mean, you could be standing in the supermarket and all of a sudden on the front page of, you know, the cover of a magazine, there's a 9-11, especially around, you know, a lot of political events and campaigns. I mean, 9-11 is everywhere. Mm -hmm. And you don't have control over when you're going to be inundated with those memories. But how about also people wanting to tell you their stories? I mean, did you have that happen, where they wanted to tell you where they were? Um, I've never really, I mean... No, I've never really had somebody, because normally when you say that you lost, you know, my father was killed in 9-11, it's pretty mm-hmm. much, you know, an, an, it's They're an end, end of conversation kind of, you know, not many people know what to say kind of after that. Yeah. How about you, Susan? I mean, uh, Stevie. Did- Hi, this is Stevie. I've had where people will tell me, oh, I lost friends, or I lost this, or I lost that, and... uh you know, I was listening. I remember, like, the first couple of years I'd be with friends, and all of a sudden it would start the end of July. And I'm like, ugh, they're starting already? And, uh, you know, it's a horrible thing, but I remember the year of Katrina. It was right around 9-11. And it was the first time, I don't even remember what year it was, that 9-11 wasn't spoken about as much which was really a relief. You know, unfortunately, it was another catastrophe, but, you know, it's just... And and even today, I mean, on my cell phone or on my emails, I get... There's this one person from 9-11 whose son got killed, and he's like the center for everybody. So he has the whole database of like, you know, 2,000, 3,000 names, and I could get at least four to five emails from him a day and I'm like enough yeah, this is Susan he kind of has a hand or ear in almost any 9-11 in almost any 9-11 news piece uh, any anything going on he gets every single message out to the families so um and so you not, constantly it like get that, even yeah. if you didn't want it. I mean, I, I guess you could tell him you didn't, but, you know, um, you, there are people who out there, well, do you consider it murder, the 9-11? I do. It was This is yes. Stevie, yes. And, yeah. and, and, and that's what I think, that some people, you know, don't get it. I mean, this is murder. Well, well mom, <laughs> mom, for years I worked, well, when I first started working with the siblings doing groups for the fire department, I went in and said, you guys will appreciate this. You'll, you, can, you can slap me anytime you want. But I went in and kept saying, your brother died. And when your brother died and when your brother, and they finally, they said, Heidi, he was murdered. Why are you avoiding that word? And I realized I totally was avoiding that word. I was never using that word. And I really thank them because I didn't feel comfortable, obviously, saying the word murdered when that's exactly what it was. I remember being in therapy, and my therapist had said to me, this is Stevie, uh, that I would say Billy was killed. 
And she looked at me one day and she said, no, Billy was murdered. Mm -hmm. And when she said that, I was like, I, I couldn't talk. Like, I just, it was just, it was, it was what it was. Mm -hmm. And there are all sorts of things that go on with murder. There are people out there who murdered them that were involved with the murder that haven't been caught yet. You know, it's, it's got to be on and on for you folks, as we know it is for a lot of people where there's murder. I mean, you do have to go on with it, but it, there are, are a different set of, of circumstances and problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, this is Robin. You know, what I think um, it's so hard when it's your private kind of pain and sadness and that the rest of the world thinks they understand and they really don't. Um, and when it's murder, you know, not just 9-11, but other kinds of murders that some of your listeners may be struggling with, you know, there's the court, there's investigations, and every time there's those new reminders to bring them back up, and it's so normal to then have a hard time as you still have to go through all those pieces to it. So it is different when it's these kind of circumstances. Um, and we forget, you know, you know, so many times it's, you know, your family and friends are right there at the moment. But, you know, 9-11, it's every year. It's every newspaper article. And, you know, for kids, it's now in history books. Mm -hmm. You know, and so the teacher they had, you know, October 2001 and November, you know, maybe 2002 remembered. But now here they are four or five years later, and they're reading it about history. So, you know, they kids, adults, they walk around with it, and we can't always see inside how they're being reminded in all sorts of ways that the rest of us don't always understand or appreciate, or we certainly can't always see it. It is important for people to realize when you're walking around with that, you do feel different, and very it's very normal feelings that you have. And that's what I love about what you all are doing, because you're giving kids a place to come in a group. And I think there's such power in groups, because you see, I'm not alone. Other kids have gone through what I'm going through. Because, you know, when you're a kid and you've had the death of a family member, most of your friends have not had the death of a parent, a sibling, you know, et cetera. They, they've only had the death of a grandparent, if even. So you really can feel isolated and all alone, like nobody understands what you're going through. So I love the, this organization and what you guys are, are doing. Absolutely, and, and this reaching out. I want to ask you, does it make you a little crazy that they haven't finished the 9-11 side, or do you just ignore it, or don't you care, or, you know, how does that go? I don't care. This is Stevie. <laughs> I mean, I do whatever Edie Lutnick tells me to do, because she's always been there for us, but basically, I, I don't even care. Mm -hmm. And how are you with it, Susan? I, I agree with what my mother had said. You know, I kind of follow the, you know, you know, direction of, you know, the company that my father worked with, Cana Fitzgerald, and they have been, you know, unbelievable uh, to our families as far as supporting and standing by us and carrying us through really every step of the way. Okay, Mom, we're going to... I was wondering, have you guys had to do some kind of forgiveness? Uh, Susan, What uh, have you had to do some forgiveness about who's out there? Have... Well, I mean, that's, have I done forgiveness or have, uh, am I willing to, uh, yeah, I'm not there yet. <laughs> I'm and that's not great. At, I'm not, to be honest, I'm not at the forgiving state. Um, can I, I do accept the fact that my father's not coming home. Do I accept the fact of what has happened? 
no. Mm-hmm. How about you? Uh, how about you, Stevie? No, I I'm definitely not there yet. <laughs> no. You know, mm-hmm. you know, people are are all concerned about the trial. Should it be here? Should it not be here? You know, again, I'm. I don't. I don't think it matters as long as they're convicted. Right. Right. So, so a lot of the issues still that go on around that. Well, I want to ask you to mother daughter, fabulous women. Um, what do you think, Billy? Think about all this. Do you think he's smiling? <laughs> Billy used to have this proud face. Like when he would get it, you know, like when he was proud of whether it be me or the kids or, and, you know, we said at the very beginning, daddy would have his proud face on. Mm. His proud face on. Just some of the stuff I've read about him, he's he's amazing. Well, Heidi, I'm, I'm still having phone problems, so I'm going to let you take the rest of the show and talk about the yes. foundation and talk with Robin about what she's doing and, uh, Thank you all for being on. It has been great, and uh, I'm going to enjoy listening to this off phone on my computer right now. It was nice to speak with you. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you, Gloria. Bye, Gloria. Bye-bye. Okay, I think that we are going to, I'm going to turn some of this over to to Dr. Robin Goodman, because I want to hear more about what you guys are doing at A Caring Hand, the Billy Esposito Bereavement Center, what services you're offering and then I want to talk about hope and giving our audience hope out there. So, Robin, can you talk to us more about what exactly you're doing? You know, I think the big thing about the center and the big draw and what makes it different is that we have groups. Um, and we, you know, there's two things um, that I think we have built um, the program and One is that it's for the whole family mm-hmm. um, because... The better the parents and caregivers are doing, the better the kids are doing. And we know that. We, I think we know it anecdotally. Mm-hmm. You know, look at you and your mom, Stevie and um, Susie. Um, but also we know it from the research um, so that, you know what, when the caregivers show that this is important to do this work, the kids are right there. We also want to make sure that they learn how to communicate about the person that died and about what they're going through together so they're not off in their own corners. The other thing is that there are groups so that kids will talk to other kids and they get it. So we once had a great kid, you know, and he once said, no offense, but, you know, I wouldn't be friends with you guys. And it wasn't in a mean way. It wasn't a mean way. It's just like, this is a special, different thing and that you get me here. But it's not like, you know, that's the great thing. These are people that would never, like, they might even walk by each other on a street and not know they had anything in common. And they come to the groups and, you know, they love it. We have... You know, we have just um, the groups. It's a 10-week session. There's a particular um, theme for each night. Um, It's a closed group so that people really bond with each other. Um, uh, We have two kids in one family that came. Um, They were a little, you know, tough, and they didn't necessarily think that, you know, they needed to be there, and they love it. And now they're having two siblings of theirs come back because they loved it. Wow. Um, Now, now these are mixed groups, right? Um, so yep, in other words, right some now. kids have had death of parents, some kids sure. have had death of siblings. Is mm-hmm, that mm-hmm, okay? Right. And the kids are divided up by the age and then mm-hmm. the parents and caregivers all together. It might be a grandmother now taking care of the kids because it was a single mom that died. It may be an ex-husband, but the you know ex-wife died. And so it's, it's very mixed. The cause is mixed. I think mm-hmm. the adults... 
you know, it does. It is a little bit different for them when it's you know a spouse or a child or a sibling or a. Um, and the kids, to them, it's like you know what, I'm bereaved. Somebody right. important died, and to them, then right away, oh, you're the same. They I, look I agree so. With you. They look past the age, the color, mm-hmm. where they live, and who it was, and it's just like, really, who died? And then there's a time where they bring in something important to show and talk about the memories. There's things they talk about change and also how to help and take care of yourselves. I love that. And Robin, I know you're also an expert on art therapy, so I imagine you bring in a lot of art. Yeah, because, you know, the adults sometimes as well as the Mm -hmm. kids and teenagers, because, you know, sometimes it's not words. You feel these things in images and flashes of something you smell or something you saw or an empty chair. And a picture of an empty chair tells the story Mm -hmm. rather than just saying it's really sad at the dinner table without my dad. Sometimes that picture shows it as a way to start talking about it, and other kids can go, I know what you, what you mean and how you feel. Mm-hmm. Um, so these groups run for how long? Um, ten weeks. Ten um, weeks. And also fabulous. there's fun, too. You know, there's, right. there's juggling and games and mm-hmm. sometimes candy as well as, you know, we get them and the volunteers. We have trained volunteers that are just fabulous. A lot of them have their own grief history, and so the kids relate to them and the teenagers and the parents can say, you know, you turned out okay now, mm-hmm. ten. 20 years later, so maybe my kids, you know, I see my kids will be okay. Well, that's such a concern for parents. When their children have had a loss, I don't care how old their children are, they are so worried that these losses are going to destroy these children forever. And I always say, you know, our losses define who we are, but they don't destroy who we are because it's parents have so much anxiety around that. And I understand why. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds like you're also working with it's twofold. You're working with the kids mm-hmm. and then what the parents are in their own groups. Right. To talk about what's going on for them and also talk about what's going on for the kids and how to help them. Oh, I love this. Mm-hmm. And exactly so, learning. It's using learning how to now be a single parent and be mom, be dad, mm-hmm. drive carpools, do homework, go to work, mm-hmm. food shop and you know, and somewhat have time for yourself too. And that's so difficult. I know just from where I know that Stevie can weigh in on this even more, but just from working with and all the nine eleven widows that I have, you know, they said we're used to having someone where we can kind of go back and forth with our spouse and kind of, you know, get their take on what's going on with the kids and now it's all on us. And how has that been, Stevie? Well my children were older. Mm-hmm. But I never paid a bill in my life mm-hmm. ever. And uh I'll never forget my son sat with me with all of the the bills that came in, all the mail. And I did, however, my husband did it when he did. Hold on. I have to just interject. I'll never forget when she was so excited that she had figured out my dad's mechanism in the checkbook. And mind you, it wasn't all that difficult. It was an (laughs) X if it was if it cashed and it was an O if it was open. Oh, I love it. And she was like, I figured it out. And it was like... Again, I mean, she didn't know where things were. She had never, right. you know, done any of, of this before because she never had to. Right, you exactly. know. And I learned from that, you know, if you come into my house, I'm a little now anal retentive that I need to know where everything is. Mm-hmm. My fear is, God forbid, something should happen. I guess it's the control, you know, well, to Well, it's interesting it. because even though my father didn't die because my brother died and I know that people can die suddenly – I also have that control, that issue, 
-hmm. where, okay, I want to know how to be able to do everything. If God forbid anyone ever died, I want to know how to be able to have control over it. You could learn. (laughs) (laughs) I already have for the same reason that your daughter has. It's interesting, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So, I pay my bills online now. My husband would never have done that in a million oh years. Oh, my God. You could teach Billy a thing or two right now. Right. <laughs> Except he wouldn't <laughs> trust anybody that was online. But I just want to go back one to the center 